I wanted to, before we get into the Dharma talk, I was going to share with you my brand new meditation experience. So, you know, over the years, we all sit in different places and there's different sounds and distractions. And uh, there are a few that um, like stick in my mind. I was on a retreat once and the cows had gotten out of like a nearby field and had surrounded the Dharma hall and they were like really loud, just like mooing. And like, it was, you could hear it echoing in the Dharma hall. And then uh, another time I was at PIMC teaching and I can't remember what the opportune moment was, but in the middle of my talk, there was a car that drove by just blaring Led Zeppelin and it fit like right into the talk. And I like brought it into the talk, something about being aware of sound arising and passing away. But today I had a brand new experience of something I had to be equanimous to. So there's this tree in our yard that's now big enough to actually sit kind of inside. It makes this beautiful canopy. So I've been sitting out there uh, meditating. And uh, so I'm meditating and we Molly was with me. So we were meditating and we realized that a squirrel had climbed up into the top of the tree and was eating the walnuts. And as the squirrel was eating, all of the walnut pieces were falling all over us as we were trying to sit. And so things are falling in my lap and I'm like covered in walnut pieces. And anyway, it's one of those weird things you don't think you're going to have to be equanimous to when you're sitting. I may have broken my equanimity and said something like, please don't play with your food or throw your food. I mean, I said it gently, <laughs> but... That was my experience for the day. So you never know what you'll come across to be equanimous to in sitting. It could be you might be in the path of a squirrel eating. You never know. Cows, squirrels. Ah, <sighs> so Dharma talk. If you were here last week, we started talking about past, present, and future in relationship to the Dharma. And the the series of talks I'll be giving in the next few weeks sort of came out of a commonly asked question students uh, ask, and myself have asked it dozens of times in the past, which is, how do I remain present? Or how do I plan for my future, so to speak? How do I get in touch with goals and aspire to create something in my life if the goal of the path is to be present? And that reminded me that we often have a misunderstanding of the way the past, present, and future connect in the present moment which made me think, oh, this would be a good time to kind of take a really deep dive into this connection because really we enter into the present moment so we can heal from the past, let go of the harm and the hurt that's happened or that we've caused, bring with us the things we're grateful for, the goodness in our life, the things that have happened to us that are positive and supportive, and to be deep enough in the present moment that we can then plant seeds for future contentment, for future well-being, for future nourishing. So really, we enter into the present moment, which is the only place our world is unfolding, but we, we use the present moment as a doorway to healing from the past and creating a positive future. So it's all happening actually at the same time. So that's what we've been, that's what we started talking about last week. And so this week I want to take our first step really into the past and talk about how is it that we can use meditation specifically? And how can we use the tools and the habits of the factors of awakening and the qualities of enlightenment to 
explore our past in ways that's healing and nurturing and nourishing? How do we do that? And then how do we bring that experience deeply into the present so the past will no longer be in our future, but just in the past where it really truly is and where it belongs? How do we do that? And it's not easy as anyone who's ever tried. We talk about the past in ways such as I can't seem to stop living in the past. I feel burdened by the past, um, weighed down by the past. We all, no matter how good our past has been, know what it's like to be weighted down or feeling like we still have one foot back there and we're trying to move forward and we get tripped up, we get hung up. And so how do we release ourselves from that? How do we really let go? And so move forward, so to speak. And that's what I wanted to talk about today. And we'll just get to the beginning of this conversation um, today. And we'll continue it over the next few weeks. But we're going to talk about the past. And I just want to say a couple things as a context or a prelude, so to speak. Um, some of us have great memories. Most of us have at least a few wonderful memories about our past. Not everyone, but many of us do. Some of us have some really hard memories about the past. Some of us have had some real tough stuff. Some of us have had boundaries that have been not honored, physical boundaries, emotional boundaries, right? We've had relationships that haven't gone well in a variety of ways. And even when I say the word past or let's talk about the past or work through the past, I know from my own experience of trauma that my heart contracts a little bit when I hear that word sometimes or my body will tense up just a little bit thinking, oh, what is the teacher going to talk about? Like, how deep are we going to go? What are we going to get into here? So I just wanted to let you know, I'm aware that when we talk about the past, no matter how many positive things we've had, it might trigger you a little bit. There might be some contraction of the heart. There might be some physical contraction. Be mindful of it. Be mindful of how your body, your heart and mind respond when you're listening to this stuff. And you can always turn off the camera if you need space, so to speak, or we're going to record the talk and something's too triggering, you know, come back and listen to it next week. But I just wanted to honor the fact that I don't take talking about the past lightly, both as Dharma teacher and therapist and someone who's had some rough stuff in my past. I understand that talking about this, even with the intention to heal, even with the intention to learn new frameworks and just getting education about it can still be a little contracting or stingy depending on the situation. So Self-care, as always. Take care of yourself um, in the group. And um, yeah. So I just want to set that out there. And the other thing I wanted to remind us is that one of the difficulties about healing is that when we learn new techniques or tools, or we are reading a book about it or gaining some new information, oftentimes because we're triggered in the moment, it becomes harder to learn the new tool because the heart and mind don't learn very well when we're being stimulated by something that's bad or unpleasant that we're remembering. So that makes talking about the past and dealing with the past hard, even when our intention is benevolent, even when we're just trying to learn new stuff. So again, take it easy and uh, take care of yourself and just remember that um, you can take this at your own pace. And I'm going to just be giving some overview today. So um, we're not going to do any deep psychos psychological work or anything like that. Um, but I just did want to open my heart to that, that fact before we begin. The Dharma asks us to transform the way we relate to ourselves, to others, and to our world, to our environment. 
the Eightfold Path, the entire setup of the Eightfold Path, all the tools, all the teachings, all the meditation practices that you see in ancient Buddhism are all designed to transform relationships. It transforms, or they transform, the relationship we have with ourselves. It transforms the relationship we have with others, and it transforms the relationship that we have with our environment. The transformative practices transform the relatedness in consciousness and the relatedness in the heart. Mindfulness is a relationship. Intentional mindfulness is a choice to engage the world, relate to the world in a particular way with wakefulness, with awareness, with sense contact. Loving kindness is a way of relating to the world. We choose to relate to the world with an aspirational orientation of wishing well for all beings and wishing well for ourselves. Gratitude, same thing. Gratitude is a way of relating to ourselves and relating to our world in a particular way. So all of these tools and practices are a way of gaining deeper, more intimate, more vulnerable, more truthful, more freeing relationships. This is how the Dharma unfolds to awakening. Deeper, more intimate, more connected relationship with ourselves and the world. In light of that, it's important to remember that when the Buddha talks about suffering, the Buddha says that suffering exists in relationship. That suffering, in fact, is a relationship. When we say we're suffering, what we're really saying is, I am in relationship with myself or something outside myself in a way that's causing pain, that's causing dukkha. That suffering is in a relationship. Change the relationship, change the suffering. When we say we want to heal from the past, what we're really saying from a Dharma perspective, not a psychotherapeutic perspective, but from a Dharma perspective specifically, we're not saying we're healing from the past. We're saying our intention is to change our relationship with the past. To be in relationship with something in the past that happened differently than we are now. The way we're relating to it now is causing dukkha. We need to use agency, intentionality, attention to change the relationship. Change the relationship, we change the suffering. So this is how we're going to approach talking about the past. Remembering that the past is something we're in relationship to. And that we have the ability through the Dharma, through the tools and the habits and the qualities of wakefulness to change that relationship. And as we change that relationship, freedom is what we get in the process. In order to really change our relationship with the past from a Dharma perspective, the very first thing we have to do, the very first thing we have to do is remind ourselves of the first noble truth, the first noble truth of suffering. And I'm going to explain a little bit why it's so important that we start there when we're talking about the past. The first noble truth says that there is suffering. Woven into the very fabric of the human experience is dukkha, stress, dissatisfaction, discontent, and dis-ease. Every human being, no matter what's going on superficially, underneath there is always stress and discontent and suffering that is arising and passing away. Suffering is always coming at us in various forms. It is difficult to acknowledge this, which is why it's considered the first noble truth. The first noble truth doesn't just say there is suffering. The first noble truth 
invites us to comprehend that fact at the deepest level of our heart and mind, to really acknowledge that everywhere we look, the whole history of humanity is laden with suffering, right? Human beings receive and cause harm. It's part of the way we are in the world. Doesn't mean we want to, doesn't mean we don't want to get out of it, but the fact is human beings cause harm to ourselves and to others. And that's a hard pill to swallow because the mind and heart are programmed, so to speak, to run away from suffering, to distract ourselves, right? To get involved in sensual activities, to constantly pretend that the world is just great. The heart and mind don't want to lean into and embrace suffering. There's so much suffering in the world. The heart and mind want to escape. So we don't usually spend our time looking at this invitation to really honor suffering, to really honor suffering, to really touch down intimately and vulnerably with the fact and reality that suffering is woven into the fabric of what it is to be a human being. Sometimes we turn away from the first noble truth, not simply because it's challenging to really be with the suffering, but we often think mistakenly that if we say to ourselves, okay, suffering is a natural part of the human experience. Oftentimes, we conflate that with thinking we're saying that we're consenting, encouraging, or making excuses for the suffering. So I'm going to say that again. Sometimes we turn away from the first noble truth because we're afraid that if we honor the fact of the suffering, if we really say suffering really is a intricate part of what it is to be human, then we might inadvertently be saying, well, there's nothing we can do about it if it's natural, right? Let's just, um, let's not even try and stop it. And that's not what we're saying. We're saying there is a way out of suffering, but first and foremost, we must acknowledge that it's there. So acknowledging that suffering is there is not the same as making excuses for ourselves and others when they're engaging in harmful behavior. But we often think that way. It's natural to think that way. And so oftentimes we don't lean into this first noble truth because we feel like if we say it, it's going to be an excuse for the behavior. Honoring suffering is not consent to the suffering. It's just honoring the fact that we harm ourselves and others, even when we don't intend to. It's just the way we are. And it's hard to, to master that. It really is. Um, I know in myself, it's like I've been doing this for 25 years and still I push away from that, from that fact. Another reason we push away from the first noble truth, as I sort of hinted at before, is we think that if we really get in touch with the naturalness of it, the fact that it's just everywhere and it pervades so much of human experience, that we will be saying, I can't get out of it. That it's so prevalent and that there's so much of it that we might be overwhelmed, not be able to really touch down on it, and we'll end up with the sense of disappointment overwhelm, or we might experience the pain so much that we won't be able to function. So there's all kinds of ways the heart and mind rebel against wanting to really be present to the pain and the fact of suffering. So it's both natural to want to transcend it, but it's equally natural to not want to have to go through the process of doing so, because that's how we're wired. We're wired to distract. We're wired to disengage, not engage the dukkha. In general, we tend to tiptoe around the first noble truth and say to ourselves, yeah, yeah, I know, there's a lot of suffering. Okay, what's the next step? But the first noble truth is really asking us to think about the whole history of humanity, right? 
all of the really bad things that human beings are capable of doing to each other and taking in that fact as part of the legacy of what it is to be human, that karma, so to speak. That's not so easy because for most of us, we don't want to think that we're capable of doing such grievous harm. We want to be able to think, well, sure, I can do some harm, but you know, I'm a good person, right? We often think that acknowledging the first noble truth means acknowledging we're bad or that we need to shame ourselves or we need to feel guilty. That's not what it's about. Acknowledging the first noble truth is a step towards release versus a step backwards towards denial, which is what distraction is, right? The heart running away, that distraction, that's the denial. Acknowledging it, that's the beginning of release. Oftentimes, it's really challenging for our hearts and minds to stay with that conversation. So I know in my own experience, the few times I've given like full-length talks on the first noble truth, where I go into all the suffering, aging, illness, death, and you know all of these different types of suffering, and I give a full talk on the first noble truth. It is so common after the talk that the very first question from somebody is, but what about all the goodness in the world? And what you can see in that moment is a heart and mind not wanting to stay with the do. We immediately say, but what about the goodness? Because we want to get away from the fact of suffering. It's really common, right? We can talk about suffering for 20 minutes, but then we must talk about we are the mind and the heart really want to get away from this. So we turn on that switch and we're like, whoa, wait, we need to get out of this. We need to get out of the conversation because we don't want to touch down on this fact of suffering. It hurts. It's painful. We don't want to do that, even though it is one of the steps on the path to freedom. The reason I mention this is that until we can really acknowledge the fact of suffering, it is very difficult to heal from things that have happened in our past. Until we can really take a full bite, so to speak, a full meal of the first noble truth, we can really start to get into the first noble truth and really acknowledge the naturalness of human suffering. It is very difficult to begin to heal from things in our past. This is why in wise view, which is the very first step of the Eightfold Path, the first noble truth is there. The first noble truth is the first because if we do not begin by really acknowledging the naturalness of human suffering, it is very hard to be free if we don't start there. So that's why I'm bringing that in, is to remind us that as we talk about the past, we're always going to be talking about the first noble truth. And what I thought I would do tonight is I'd really want to ground this in direct experience. I really want to ground this in practical experience. And I thought I would try to do this in a different way than I've done in the past. What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about how our mind and heart operate when we're turning away from the first noble truth. I'm going to start there because I think you all can relate to these ideas that I'm about to say. And I'm going to try to come about it in a different way than I normally do. So I'm going to start by saying, let's explore what stories we tell ourselves, which the Buddha calls mental fabrication. How do we talk to ourselves when we are not fully grounded in the first noble truth? So this would be the normal mind. This is the normative mind. This is what the mind does when it hasn't yet really begun the meditative journey with the first noble truth in mind. So let me... One of these, of course, is you're going to laugh because you've heard this a thousand times, but um, I'm going to give you a series of 
they want to call them? Not aphorisms. Well, no, I think they're just called verbalizations. I think this would be verbal fabric, um, mental fabrication. I think it is a list of mental fabrications, I think, if you're going to talk about this in terms of the Dharma. Okay, now I'm squared away. I just wanted to see how I was going to frame this. Okay, so the one that you're all familiar with the most, when we have not fully comprehended or accepted the fact of suffering, when suffering happens, the heart usually says, this shouldn't be happening. This shouldn't be happening. That is the battle cry of a heart and mind that denies the nature of suffering. This shouldn't be happening. How could this be happening? And what that phrase really means is, I can't believe that this suffering is possible in existence, right? And so we're pushing away. It's a kind of denial. It's a kind of um, distraction. It shouldn't be happening. Another way we often say this or think this to ourselves is, I can't believe they did that. Or I can't believe I did that. There's this surprise of that, of that there's suffering, that there's harm being done or caused by myself or others. It shouldn't be happening. I can't believe it is happening. I can't believe I am participating in the happening. It's very hard for us to really acknowledge that. So the heart denies, distracts, and protects. This is a safety mechanism. It's natural. Another way that the heart and mind speaks to itself, talks to itself, when it is away from the first noble truth, when it's not grounded in the first noble truth of suffering, we say things like, I should have known better. How could I have done that? I should have known better. They should have known better. How could they have done that? They should have known better. Am I the only one who's ever heard these things in their own head? I can't believe I am. <laughs> these are common internal verbalizations that are indicative that we are slightly off center from the first noble truth. I'll go in this a little bit deeper to really explain how this works. You'll see clearly in a second. These are some of the things we say to ourselves. When we say things like, I can't believe I did that. Oftentimes what we really mean is, I can't believe I'm capable of doing that kind of harm. I can't believe I'm capable of doing that kind of harm, which is to say, oh my gosh, suffering exists. And I am a contributor to suffering because I'm a human being and it's part of who I am. To this day, I have two really strong memories of things that I did in the past that I have a hard time reframing. One is when I was in high school, I remember this specific time teasing another kid. And it was just in retrospect, there's this sense in myself now that I'm in my forties. I think, oh man, how could I have done that? It was so mean. I just remember it in retrospect being so mean. And when I think of who I am now, it's like there's a sense of embarrassment and shame. Like I'm capable of that. And the thought that comes into my head is I should have known better. I should have known better. How could I have let that happen? How could I have participated in that? Right? And that is me pushing away from the fact that suffering happens. People cause suffering. I'm a human being. I've caused suffering to people inadvertently, unconsciously, unintentionally, because that's the nature of what it is to be human. We cause harm. We have the capacity to cause harm. But it's hard for me to accept that because I want to have this image of myself that I'm this Dharma teacher, I'm this 
whatever meditator. I don't want to talk about having ruthlessly teased someone in high school and feeling terrible about it now. Another time I was, uh, I was really young and, uh, I got this job doing some driving, um, for an older guy. And, uh, so I take him around and do different things and he wasn't very nice to me. That was my perception back then. I don't know. It's a memory, but I, he wasn't very nice to me and I, I found him to be rude and I was thinking in my head, this guy's so rude and he's being very mean and, and I use that as an excuse. So he would give me money to go into a store to get him something and I would pocket the change. And in my head, I said, this guy's being mean, you know, what are a few bucks to him? Right? So I'd pocket the change. It was change, like, you know, a dollar or 50 cents or something. In retrospect, I feel terrible about that. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm a meditator. I try to keep my precepts. I'm always telling myself, don't take what is not freely given. But I am capable of stealing, right? I'm capable of stealing and rationalizing it. And to this day, I think, how could I have done that? I should have known better. These are the kind of things that my heart and mind say. This is when I'm not present to the fact of suffering because I don't want to say I'm capable of causing harm. I don't want to say I'm capable of causing somebody else suffering. I want to be able to think that I'm beyond it or above it or something like that, but I'm not. I've done things in my life that have harmed. So I can tell in my own practice when I start going that way of like, how could this happen? It happens because it's a human thing to have that happen. Now I'm going to clarify this and say, and I'll say it this way. When I was in graduate school, I had this amazing professor. I had this amazing professor. And and this is when I was learning to be a therapist. And my professor would say, you know, you're going to be with clients and you really you really really want them to get well. And sometimes people come in and it takes them a really long time. And even as a therapist, they may not get well in your care. They may take four or five therapists or maybe you're just not the right therapist for them. And so my teacher said, you're going to think that the person sitting in front of you is capable of doing more, of healing faster, of doing better. And you're going to think to yourself, they should know better. Can't they see that this thing is causing them harm in their marriage? Can't they see that if they just did this thing over, the, over here, anxiety would be gone? Can't they see by doing that thing, it's causing more problems with their kids? You're going to say to yourself, why can't they see this? They should know better. It's so obvious. They should just know better. Why don't they know? And he said this to us, and I'll never forget this. He said, human beings do the best that they are in the moment. Human beings do the best that they are in the moment. Not the best that they can, but the best that they are. That in the moment, each of us as human beings are doing the best we are as human beings in this moment. And to expect ourselves or others to do better is a very strange framework that causes ourselves and others a lot of suffering. Have you ever had anyone in relationship externalize that to you? You should have known better. Does it make you feel warm and fuzzy? Does it make you feel deeply connected? Does it make, isn't, you know what I'm saying? It's a really weird thing. Even though we, I say it to myself all the time, <laughs> but you know, when you say it to someone else, you see that kind of hurt that it causes because human beings are always doing the best that they are, even when it seems like they're not. And this is a really powerful reframe and a very hard one to take on because oftentimes, like I said earlier, we translate that idea that we're making excuses for the behavior, that we're consenting to the behavior, 
But really, we're saying that so we can honor the humanity of our fellow beings. So we can really honor our own humanity and remind ourselves that we're doing the best that we are with what we have in the present moment. For those of you who have a piece of paper handy or a notebook, I'm going to give you a few phrases here that will bring this point home, I hope. And you can just meditate on them. I can post them when we post the talk. Um, but I wanted to throw out a few more phrases related to this so you can really kind of get what I'm saying here and then I'll pull it all together. Human beings are inherently imperfect. Human beings are inherently imperfect. With being human comes ignorance. In every moment of our lives, we are imperfect and there is something that we're unaware of or ignorant of. There is always a blind spot. So human beings are inherently imperfect. Human beings are inherently ignorant. Human beings inherently make mistakes. We make mistakes all the time. It's natural for human beings to make mistakes. And it sounds kind of trite, but we forget. When we approach another human being and say, how could you have? In that moment, we've forgotten these things, that human beings are imperfect, that they're ignorant, and they inherently make mistakes. And we are that human being. The last one is, human beings inherently harm ourselves and others intentionally and unintentionally. We're inherently imperfect. We're inherently ignorant, meaning at all times there's a blind spot that we don't see. We inherently make mistakes. And we inherently harm ourselves and others intentionally and unintentionally. These phrases are just another way of saying there is suffering and the cause of suffering woven into the fabric of what it is to be human. When we, or I should say, when we are in the process of comprehending the first noble truth, coming up against these stories and reframing them is so important because it allows us to forgive ourselves. It allows us to forgive others. It allows us to live up to a higher aspiration of being. It allows us to be with others and encourage them to aspire to a less harmful, more loving, more compassionate way of being, while always understanding that when harm occurs and things go awry, which they always do, that we're imperfect beings, that we're imperfect by nature. So when someone steps to you and says, how could you have done that? What they're forgetting is that you're imperfect. That's how, that's why, that you're capable of harm. That's why, there is an actual answer. How could you have done it? Because you're imperfect, because you're human. Doesn't mean it was a great choice, but it is what humans do. And once we can really indwell this fact, this nature of suffering, the awakening into peace and freedom that we have when we relate to our past is tremendous. But we do have to start here. We do have to start here with looking at how we talk to ourselves about suffering and its naturalness and how we push away from it versus leaning in. Saying that suffering 
shouldn't be happening is like saying an earthquake shouldn't be happening. It's silly when you think of it in terms of an earthquake, but we don't think it's silly when something hurts us, right? When something hurts us, we're like, that shouldn't be happening. When the rain comes, we don't say it shouldn't be raining because that would be silly. That is to the degree that the first noble truth is inviting us to really look at suffering. It's that natural. It's a part of the human experience. And again, does not mean consent. It's not what we're saying here. We're just talking about honoring the fact of it. Now, to flip this around, as we begin to comprehend the first noble truth, the stories we tell become different. And I'm going to give you a list of the way this would be reframed. They're pretty obvious. You would just flip the previous ones around, but this is the way they, they happen. As you begin to understand the first noble truth, when something happens that causes really hard discontent, instead of saying, this shouldn't happen, we say, I wish this wouldn't have happened. I wish this wouldn't have happened. It really hurt. I wish this wouldn't, I wish that person wouldn't have said that. I really wish that person wouldn't have treated me in this way. It acknowledges the fact of the suffering, but also acknowledges you don't want it to continue. Healthy boundary, but it doesn't say it shouldn't have happened as if suffering is not a part of the experience. Another way of looking at it is, I wish we could have a world where that thing doesn't happen. I can give an example for myself. During several of the school shootings in the last couple of years, I found myself saying, this shouldn't be happening. Kids shouldn't have to go to school and fear for their lives. I mean, I just remember saying this specifically. I had to catch myself. What, my, what I was really trying to say was, I wish we could have a world where this doesn't happen, right? I wish we could have a world where this doesn't happen. That acknowledges the fact, you know what? Sometimes people go into schools and shoot people. That is what human beings are capable of. And that is a fact of what it is to be human. But in the way I take a stand and show up as the Dharma practitioner, I'm going to say, I would like to take a stand for a world where that does not happen. It allows me to honor its nature and then act skillfully with compassion. Right? People are suffering. They're imperfect. They get traumatized. They cause harm. People do this. It's not about it should not happening. It's about can we acknowledge that it does and then orient ourselves to say, hey, I really wish I could be in a world. I wish I can aspire to a world where this would not happen. And then we can take steps to prevent it from happening. Another thing you'll notice in yourself as you become more grounded in the first noble truth is how surprised you are and the way you get surprised or shocked by pain and suffering around you. When we are out of touch with the first noble truth, when bad things happen, especially significant stuff, right? We tend to be really overwhelmed because when we say, oh my gosh, how can this be happening? That overwhelms us. It derails us. It causes and contributes to a more deep sense of dukkha. As you begin to understand the first noble truth and get in touch with it, what's going to happen, there's going to be two layers of what one might call shock or surprise at suffering. So let me give you an example. The pandemic comes along. I've never lived through a pandemic. 
So there is a natural sense of, wow, I can't believe this is hat. I can't believe I'm wearing a mask out. There's that type of shock because it's a practical surprise. I've never had this experience. How can this be happening? But when it comes to the suffering, am I surprised at the way we've handled this? No, because human beings are ignorant. We make mistakes. We don't get along. We fight. We argue, right? We can't get our, we can't get our stuff together. That's not surprising because that's the first noble truth. Having the pandemic in my life, sure, that's surprising. But because there is the meditator in me that is anticipating and understanding that suffering happens, people do harm, am I surprised of all the other subtle harms that have occurred within the pandemic? Not so much because human beings cause harm intentionally and unintentionally. So when I hear certain leaders say things, Am I surprised? I'm surprised that I'm hearing them, but am I surprised that human beings do that kind of thing? Nope, because that's the first noble truth. So what begins to happen is you begin to stabilize in the world where you can certainly be impacted by suffering, but the surprise that suffering is a part and a natural thing that just keeps coming, that part, that dukkha goes away. And that's what really allows you to begin to cultivate compassion, to cultivate self-care, Cultivate self-love and love and forgiveness and mercy for those other humans around you who are also imperfect, ignorant, and making mistakes that are causing harm. It really allows us to take a heart-centered approach to suffering, right? Which is really what the Dharma is about, a heart-centered approach to suffering. So again, I bring this up because as we talk about the past and healing from the past, we, cannot, we can't even begin to heal from the past until we reorient ourselves to our relationship with suffering. Once we begin to reorient ourselves to the relationship, our relationship with suffering, we can then orient ourselves to the past in a way where we can really do some deep work. So that's why I wanted to start here and really have us ground ourselves and step really fully into this first noble truth. So to bring this all together, when we are out of touch with the nature of suffering, we tend to see it as being, how could this happen? It shouldn't have happened. I can't believe this is happening. I should have known better. They should have known better. Those are the kind of self-talk phrases that our heart and mind tend to go to. And in those moments, we have also forgotten 100% of the time that human beings are imperfect, that we don't know everything, that we're ignorant, that we make mistakes, even with the best of intentions, and every single person is capable of harming themselves and harming others intentionally and unintentionally. If we can get into that framework, suddenly the past can open up to a type of healing that is really powerful. And that is really how the Dharma allows us to enter into the past. We first look at suffering very differently and then we enter into the past in a different relationship, and that allows us to take steps towards healing. So I'm going to stop there. That is my introduction to the past, so to speak. Talked about some tough stuff, deep stuff. Please, self-care, tonight, tomorrow, reflect on what we talked about. Take it into your meditation. Next week, we'll dive in further into how we can use the tools of the Eightfold Path in 
taking these relics of the past that are in our present and working with them for healing. So we'll go a step deeper and we'll really start talking about what that healing is and what kind of tools we have to offer. Let's fall back into the present for just a couple minutes and we'll do meta and we'll close. Take a long, slow, deep breath in through the nose and out through the mouth. Long, slow, deep breath in and out. Let us remember that we practice for ourselves so we can heal so we can grow in love and compassion. And we engage in these practices so we can then show up in the world as kind, loving, and actively compassionate human beings. We practice for ourselves so we can be free, so we can work for freedom for all beings. May all beings share in the merits of our practice. May all beings share in the merits of our practice. May we show up as compassionate, loving, joyful, and wise creatures. So every being that comes across our path will benefit from who we are. May all beings be free. May all beings know true love, true kindness, and true happiness in this lifetime. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you so much, my friends, for joining me once again. It is such a privilege to work through this stuff with you. Totally helps my practice. Deep stuff. Take care of yourself. Be well. And we'll see you next week.